The Insider's Career Club podcast gives you an insider's viewpoint from top professionals. Hi, I'm Cindy Thomas, your insider, and I've interviewed and helped thousands of professionals get hired over 25 plus years as a career recruiter, a TA manager, and a director of TA. How many times has someone said to you, you need to have your head examined? Or maybe they said, you're crazy, and they meant it. Today, our special guest is someone who can help you with that. She'll discuss her career and share some tips about staying balanced in today's crazy busy world. Our guest today is Dr. Rita Hargrave, MD. She's a psychiatry specialist in the San Francisco Bay Area with over 41 years of experience as a medical practitioner. She graduated from Howard University College of Medicine Medical School and earned her undergrad degree from Harvard. She specializes in neurology and psychiatry. Dr. Rita has 15 areas of disease expertise, and some of her specialities include personality disorders, ADHD, depression, and Alzheimer's. Now, while all this sounds super serious, and it is, there's a fun side to Dr. Rita too. All work and no play may result in needing her own services. Some of her pastimes include playing music in a local band, and she just finished and released a documentary on the history of salsa dancing. Welcome. Welcome, Dr. Rita, to the Insider's Career Club podcast. Thank you so much for inviting me. Well, I am thrilled to have you here, so I appreciate your time. Before we start discussing your career in medicine, Let's uh, have you share a little bit about yourself with the listeners. Where'd you grow up? Yes, I grew up in um, Washington, D.C., a great town, uh, lots of black people, lots of schools, jobs, amazing community. Oh, sounds like it. Are you from a big family? No, just my parents and me, but we were surrounded by uh, aunts and uncles on both sides. So I had lots of help. Okay. What about cousins about your same age? Did you have anybody that kind of felt like a brother or a sister? No, not at all. My biggest playmate was my dad. He was the guy. (laughs) Taught me how to ride uh, bicycles backwards. Uh, He taught me every sort of way you can leave home. Taught me how to ride a bike, drive a car, get on the airplane. Wow, that sounds great. So what made you decide to reload out to the Bay Area? I was definitely interested in going someplace different than staying in D.C. because D.C. have a a long past there. So I wanted to try someplace different. And Mm. when I was in um, medical school, I uh, visited lots of other cities. Chicago looked great. I mean, New Orleans. But when I came to San Francisco, that seemed to be where things really clicked. I also had a classmate who had a cousin living in Berkeley at that time. And she let me stay at her house for a couple of months. So I already had feel for what the Bay Area was like. And it seemed like a perfect mix of an adventure on the West Coast, but still having the community and the urban feel of an East Coast city. Right. That sounded like a really good transition for you. How fortunate you were to have that. Did you ever entertain any other career or did you you know that you always wanted to be an MD? No, I, I did have a lot of interest in biology and science from the very beginning. And I had some very gifted teachers in junior high school and high school who really made it extremely exciting. 
also my, my parents were a great influence. They had a lot of books around the house. I remember looking through the Encyclopedia Britannica and being fascinated by the anatomy pages. And I think at one point, my parents even got me a mechanical heart to put together. You know how people put together kits of car engines? Well, I had one about how to put together a heart. Wow, that kind of beats the puzzles other people put together. What was your motivation for being an MD? There's got to be the why behind being fascinated with with the physiology of it. Uh, My parents were both civil servants. I say I'm a genetic civil servant. So I was always thinking about what was going to be a profession that I'd be able to take anywhere in the country, be able to find a job and be able to live a a comfortable lifestyle. So money was certainly an issue. But also I spent two years working in a research cardiology lab in Boston after college. So I did not go directly into medical school. And I said, if I'm thinking about going into medicine, I've never spent any time in a hospital. So I should at least spend time working there, talking with people, seeing what the opportunities were. And it seemed at that time that the people who were having the most fun and had the most sense of collegial spirit were medical students and residents. They really looked like they were learning a lot. They felt like they were on a mission. I had no idea how hard they were working, but that seemed to be an area where there were so many different possibilities within one profession. So I think all of those things together, but spending the time in the hospital and talking to people and seeing what the options were, I think that was really critical. So you got to see the outcomes rather than the back end of it before you got too involved. Yes, definitely. And also taking those two years off allowed me to think about whether or not I wanted to devote the next four years to it. I think it makes a lot of sense if you're going to make that kind of a life commitment. Be pretty sure that this is what you want to do and also have alternatives too. Right. Well, let's take a look into what a geriatric psychiatrist does. Would you share that with us? Yes. There are only about 1,200 in the country, and I think there's probably about five black ones. It's a pretty specialized area, and there's a huge need for it. But what I spend most of my time doing is listening to to patients, older adults, and their families. Usually, the person with the identified problem has pretty common issues around sleep and low mood and maybe some memory problems. Sometimes people come in after they've developed a serious, say, heart attack or neurological problem and their spirits are low. But I'm mm-hmm. spent a lot of time listening to how things were and where people want to go with it. And from there, I collaborate with their primary care doctors and uh, nursing staff so that everybody's sort of on the same page about what mental health treatment can uh, contribute to the person's overall health. I also talk specifically with other specialists, particularly in neurology, because many of the illnesses that we think about related to brain health are uh, neurological problems like stroke, Parkinson's disease. And so our sort of collaboration on what's the best way to manage those illnesses is really quite critical. Now, people think about psychiatry, they think about medications. Medications certainly are part of the picture of what is offered folks, but a lot more of the time I'm doing more health counseling. How do you manage, if you say you have depression, how do you manage to take care of your diabetes and your hypertension? And what are the things that you need to do to improve your overall health? Because your mental health is really based on how you manage your physical health. And the last two big things that I do is I do a lot of teaching, both in you know terms of family members and for patients, but also with other medical staff and for other people in mental health, like psychologists and social workers, because I'm coming at it from a different perspective. 
even though I'm a geriatric psychiatrist, the range of patients that I see, I work at the VA, the range of patients can vary from 21 to uh, like 102. And most other professionals in, in mental health don't have that wide range of patients that they manage. And I, of course, see a, a substantial number of minority patients too. Well, Rita, that is very impressive. I want to switch a little bit and turn the conversation to when you were going into Harvard. Right now, one of the hot topics with regard to business and just overall is diversity and inclusion. And so would you share your experience from a, and it often gets abbreviated DNI perspective, going to Harvard as a young Black woman, did you feel accepted in that predominantly white male institution? Well, the timing of when I went in was unique. We were still in the middle of the civil rights era because this was the late 60s. So there were a lot okay. of doors that were opening up. And people like me were coming from backgrounds that had not traditionally been admitted to places that, like Harvard, for instance. In fact, I believe my, our year, that was the largest number of Black students they admitted until, I think, 2018. So it was a particularly vibrant time. It was exciting, but it was also scary because it's a different city. Boston is much more conservative than D.C. But I had been in multicultural learning environments for a long time, so I, it wasn't a complete shock. Uh, what made it a lot easier was the fact that three of my classmates from my same high school who were Black also went to Harvard at the same time. So we all kind of shouldered the, the load together. So I wasn't completely isolated. And because there were there was that, that nidus of Black students there, you could find each other. What I was surprised by was more of a class issue as, as opposed to race issue. Because, you know, Harvard has always had Black students, but they've been people who are wealthy or upper middle class. So the big divide for us was we were coming from, you know, stable families, inner city working class families, and we were right. sitting next to people whose fathers were bank presidents and who had gone to private school. And they were as different as many of the white students us in terms of background and, and interest. So it was trying to, but we felt, you know, the need to spend time with them and sort of develop an alliance. In fact, for the upper upper class white kids, we were no threat to them. I mean, because they have, you know, money and power and they're going to be at Harvard for four years right. and then they're going to go off and run the country. So there was no, there was no real threat on our end. But I, I do what I usually do. When you find people who share your same passion, whatever your, if it's a work passion, if it's a entertainment passion, you find those people and they will embrace you. And that's what I did there. I mean, I found the theater people, the musical comedy people, and they were the people who are uh, still my friends to this day. Absolutely. That's a lifestyle rule everyone ought to remember, you know, for difficult times. Okay. How did you prepare for the path to medical school? What organizational methods did you find useful to help you learn and remember information? Well, you know, part of the preparation for medical school is taking classes that are very demanding in terms of a lot of information, a lot of data, which doesn't seem particularly useful at the time. It's like organic chemistry. I can't think of a time I've ever had to use organic chemistry, but it's almost part of the uh, bar you have to climb over to be admitted to medical school. So learning how to organize, how to really be focused with time management, 
I'd say that's the most important thing. And many of the science classes, like biology, there were labs, so there was no cramming it the night before the exam. You had to have been in the lab multiple times within the course of a semester and be able to produce things along the line. Uh, plus, Harvard had, you know, they had lots of teaching assistants, and they kept on a pretty rigorous schedule in terms of uh, exams before the actual final. So I'd say the, the biggest thing was, you know, getting a um, handle on how to manage your time and just being consistent in terms of the work. And the other big thing is because it is often so new, finding a way to reduce the level of stress that you have. That's a chronic issue. I would agree. Just college in general is stressful, but medical school is that times 10, I believe. What subjects would you advise young people to focus on in school to prepare them for medical school? We always encourage people to look at the university that they're thinking about going to to see if they actually have a pre-med track or a health professions track, because most of them do at this point, because they are aware that time is money and there's a lot of money that gets spent in those four years and they go by really quickly. But the things that continue to be sort of foundation of preparation for medical school are having a strong foundation in biology. General chemistry and organic chemistry are, are mandatory. Also, biochemistry and physics. I think a critical subject area that people don't realize how important it is, English. You really have to be able to read critically, absorb the information so it makes sense, and to be able to write. Because we spend a mm -hmm. lot of time writing. I mean, now even more than before because we've got text messaging and emails. But if you are writing up the summary of a patient that you've seen, that's got to make sense. It has to be organized because if your writing persona does not come across as policy and professional, that will interfere with your credibility as a physician. Aside from the DNI questions, what was the hardest thing you had to deal with as a medical student? Finding that balance between, you know, doing the work, but getting enough sleep, eating healthy, and finding something that will give you joy. That sounds very simple, but the time that you spend in the hospital, and as particular as a medical student, since you are the low person on the totem pole, you're the one that has to be sure everything comes together. And so when you go home, it's often very hard to turn off all the duties that you feel that you need to complete. So to be able to find a way to uh, de-stress, to get a decent night's sleep, and eating. Hospital food is not great, and most of the time medical students don't have a lot of time. So you're usually spending your time in the hospital, not necessarily coming back home, and you learn really bad eating habits. I still am amazed at the stuff I used to eat and how I managed to make it through. And Nutrition, I think people are maybe taking more responsibility for it now. And, you know, really good, healthy takeout food is a little bit easier to find if you're in a place like the Bay Area. But it's really easy to fall back into hot dogs and hamburgers and potato chips and all of that stuff. It also sounds like being able to keep yourself balanced, knowing tricks, being able to recognize when you're getting out of balance and and, you know, just to be aware of it is also very important. Yeah, and I was I was fortunate, again, in being in D.C., that I had friends who would uh, basically kidnap me on Friday afternoon or Friday evening, and we'd go out and go to a movie, go to a party, something to sort of break up 
the uh, week's worth of, of pressure. And they, they knew that. I appreciated that. My Again, I was lucky that my parents were there. So I would get these care packages from my mother in terms of food and whatnot. But yeah, having other people help you take care of yourself. Knowing what you know now about being a psychiatrist, what would you say to encourage someone to go into your field? Well, as, you know, as I said before, there there are so few psychiatrists in the country that the need is enormous in whatever area of, of it you want to go into. And the fact that it is an area that people recognize is really needed so the knowledge that we have can be used in such a practical way, not only for people who are uh, struggling yeah. with, with health and wellness issues, just how you get through life in general. One of the other reasons I chose it is that every person I meet, every book I read, every movie I see, all of that contributes to my understanding and hopefully my empathy for other people. So I can use that every day at work. So just living gives you a full picture of how you can utilize that in your work. I think that makes it a little more exciting than something that is a little more structured and rigid and it just doesn't cross over the lines of your everyday living. Yes, that and the fact that you can take that knowledge that you gain over time of what kinds of things make people do the things that they do, what kind of stresses people have, and you can see how people respond to those stresses. It helps give you some guidelines about how to manage your life, but it also gives you the Mm. background and examples to be able to help other people find the most therapeutic way of getting through life. So it all comes together. Great, great. Is there such a thing as a typical type day in the world of psychiatry or does it you have such a variety of what you do that each day is different? I'm somebody who likes to have the sort of same routine. So the main thing I'm looking at is who do I have to see on any given day? You know, so I look at my calendar when I come in, I try and you know set aside specific time in the beginning, in the middle, and the end of the day to return phone calls and emails. And there's you know, millions of electronic communication opportunities, but I try and, and block out specific time to do that so it doesn't spill into the whole day. And by the end of the day, knowing what I have to do the next day and preparing for it. So probably about a third of the time is actually seeing patients. The rest of the time is either uh, responding to emails, adding information to uh, charts. Another percentage of the time is preparing for presentations for the next day for staff and students. Or as the other thing I'm doing right now is I'm in the process of writing a, collaborating with a medical student and writing a book chapter. So I'm sort of have that in my mind to set aside some time to pull together articles for that. But mine is mine is a really mix of academic work and clinical work. For many people, the main focus of what they do is they come in, they see who their patients are, they want to be sure that they finish what they need to do before the end of the day, and then they go on. Okay. In terms of growth and specialities, what does a career path look like for psychiatry? It can go in many different directions. There are people who have made a decision from early on that they want to see patients in, say, a very structured environment so they have a regular nine to five job. There are other people who may want something a little bit different than that. They may want to be able to teach at a medical school. So half of their time is uh, spent either preparing for lectures, uh, doing research, and they're thinking about an academic medicine career where their main goal would be to sort of rise up the ranks within academic medicine and, and ultimately, say, be the head of a department. And the clinical work is the secondary part. 
Okay. And then there are other people who say that, you know, research is the main thing that's on their mind and they are looking to write grant proposals to collaborate with other psychiatrists on research projects, particularly things like development of medications for mental health disorders. So it kind of depends on um, how much you want to do, how long you want to work. And where you want to focus your time. What are the most rewarding and fulfilling aspects of what you do? Well, I'd, I'd say providing information and resources for people who would not ordinarily have access to that. That means most black and brown people. There's a lot we know about how to manage both health issues and mental health issues, but maybe other providers, particularly primary care doctors who don't necessarily have the time to talk with people or see them as frequently as I do, in a position Mm -hmm. to talk with black and brown families about these issues and follow up with them over time. So if I can offer somebody like something that's just recently happened at the VA, they have a new expanded program for uh, caregivers. So if you have somebody who uh, is disabled, um, older adult. Now there are you know, online classes about what would make it a little bit easier for you. There's money that's involved that you can get paid, that you can have people come in. But you have to know somebody right. who's going to tell you that these things exist. And if you're only seeing your primary right. care provider for six minutes, probably not going to be enough time to go through that. So that's what I find is the most rewarding thing, that there are resources out there and connecting people who need those resources with that information. Right. And and the primary care physician isn't even going to know about it more than likely unless they heard it from you. How do you stay current with the new breakthroughs for your expertise? And what does continuing education look like for you? So these days, it's, it's really pretty easy to stay on, on top of things. There are requirements for lectures and papers that you read. There are exams that you, uh, in the past, uh, things have shifted recently, but there was an exam that you would take about every 10 years. And they have very clearly laid out criterion of things that you have to complete about every three years. So they've made it very difficult for you to fall behind. And they kind of monitor how far you are in that process. In fact, we just got an email just recently that because of COVID, they've extended the amount of time for you to meet your commitments. So uh, we get a lot of stuff online. We get updates from most major psychiatric journals online. In the past, we had gone to conventions where uh, you would attend classes at those conventions or do those online as a way to keep up with things. But the mobile phones, on any given day, I'll probably get 30 articles about new things that are going on. So they inundate you with a lot of information. And most of the time it's free. I mean, there are specific courses that you can take where you pay, but there's a lot of free information out there because they want people to stay on top of things. They they are very focused on information that you can use that day. So you get more than enough information. Okay. And as a special note for the listeners, what tips would you give to them to maintain and live a balanced and healthy life? Sleep, eat, play. Those are, the, those are the critical parts of this. Real, real simple. If you do those things well, you'll probably enjoy your life. Okay. Well, Rita, I'm sure our listeners will agree that this has been a wonderfully informative interview. You've given us a really good look into what you do on a day-to-day, as well as giving us a bigger picture of what the world of psychiatry looks like. I want to thank you for taking the time to be with us today. 
we will be expanding into new topics and I hope we'll be able to have you come back and spend some more time with us a little later on. Do it. Thank you again for inviting me. You're welcome. Thanks again for being our first guest on the Insiders Career Club podcast. Take care. Take care. Thanks for joining us today. If you enjoyed this podcast, please like us and don't forget to tell your friends. The Insiders Career Club will be bringing more podcasts to you every two weeks with different professionals to give you a peek into careers with those on the inside. So please stay tuned. You can find us on Sprout and on the Insiders Career Club website where you'll find great job search information. And that's www.insiderscareerclub.com. Also, you can connect with me on LinkedIn. I spell Cindy S-I-N-D-Y. Don't forget to mention the podcast. You can also follow me on Twitter as well. Please subscribe and give us a good review with a thumbs up. That would be greatly appreciated. Stay safe and take care.